Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 22nd, 2023, trying to escape the past here on a rather rainy morning in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Not doing a very good job, I have to admit. This morning, I already talked to the Israeli novelist Noah Yedlin, and we talked, of course, inevitably. Uh, she's the author of a wonderful new novel, Stockholm, uh, which is uh, a novel or uh, 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 an absurdist novel on death and dying. Uh, and speaking of death and dying, of course, we talked about the events um, in Gaza and Israel. Um, and we talked about escaping the past, which is very difficult to do. At one point, she said what happened in Israel in the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, the beginning of October, was the worst thing uh, that happened to the Jewish people since, uh, to the Israeli people since uh, the Holocaust, of course. And it was a little bit of a Freudian slip because he never would have had Israel without the Holocaust. And there was no Israel during the Holocaust. Uh, the developments in the Middle East, of course, have raised all the old ghosts of history. We talked about many different pieces. We talked about a piece from Dara Horn, who, um, a Jew American Jewish columnist, polemicist, who was on the show at a piece uh, in the New York Times uh, yesterday about why Jews cannot sh stop shaking right now. Of course, a piece about escaping history and bringing up all the old specters, not just of the Holocaust, but many centuries of anti-Semitism. In other words, we can't escape the Second World War. Uh, we had the very distinguished British historian a few months ago, Richard Overy. We asked whether, whether the Second World War had ended yet, and it doesn't seem as if it has anywhere, whether it's Ukraine or Gaza. The ramifications of the Second World War are still tragic, problematic, unsolvable. One man who knows all about this is my guest today, uh, Roger Morehouse. He has made a very distinguished career out of studying the Second World War, particularly the Second World War in the context of Germany and the Jews. He has uh, many books and he has a new book out right now. It's called The Forgers, The Forgotten Story of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation, uh, uh, at least according to Roger, an audacious uh, rescue operation operated from, of all places, Poland, which isn't always associated, or at least from Polish notable Poles, which isn't always associated with fighting the Holocaust. Uh, Roger is joining us from Tring, just outside London. Roger, do we? you're in the business of not forgetting. You're a historian. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, have we got to stop thinking about what happened in the Second World War? I mean, it's obviously one of the great crimes, perhaps the greatest crime in human history, blah, blah, blah. But at what point does it become counterproductive to keep on going back to this yeah. terrible period in human history? That's a very good question, Andrew. I think I think it depends a little bit on um, who we're referring to in a way. I think the Germans, for, for one point, are still uh, living under the shadow. You can understand why, obviously, but I think German Germany and the German state and the German people still live far too much under the shadow of World War II. And it's one thing that I think, you know, for example, in the in their reaction to the war in Ukraine, 
uh, still overshadows their actions and their reactions to that particular conflict in a way that is that is not helpful. Uh, inhibits their um, their 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 playing a, a more uh, coherent and fruitful role uh, in a, in a modern Europe. So in that sense, I think you know Germany. I'd, it sounds crude to say, but I think Germany needs to get over its history to some extent and start acting as a, you know, as the as the geopolitical player that it can be, uh, and it, to some extent shake off its history. Um, but as you alluded to in your introduction, I mean, World War Two is still very much the formative experience of large swathes of the world. You know, a lot of Europe's borders, you know, go back to the end of the end of the Second World War. Um, and it's still, you know, the area of my specialism, particularly Germany, and but particularly Poland, um, it's still very much the, you know, the searing experience of modern history, even if that's passed down by a couple of generations. Um, it's still the, the sort of point of reference for pretty much everything that happens. It refers back to World War Two, for good or ill. Um, but in Poland's case, you know, they're still working through that history because for... for you That's know, a, a euphemistic way of putting it, Roger, working through it. Sounds as if we're in therapy. I think they are. I mean, absolutely. I think Poland to some extent is in therapy. I mean, it it had, you know, the, the cold the, the cold war and the sort of deep freeze of communism meant that that those countries that, that fell the other side of the um, the Iron Curtain could never be honest about their own history. So in Poland's case, it could only talk about its history wartime history openly after 1989 so effectively it is in therapy it's got it's got years of trauma to work through um you know the the polish polish death toll uh, in world war ii is is up beyond five million it's 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 absolutely huge the whole country is devastated um so uh, there's an awful lot of trauma for them to work through and roger does that five million include the Polish Jews, or they're another. Yeah, group? three million. Three million of those are are Polish Jews. Absolutely. So half of the Holocaust dead are Polish Jews, which is something that's often, I think, overlooked. Um, but you know, Poland's experience very much as the you know was the really the cockpit of of uh, you know the experience of World War Two in Europe. It, a lot of it happened in in Poland and points east from there, you know, into Ukraine and into um, into Belarus and the Baltic states. That really was the the very epicenter of. Both, you know, Germany's race war from 1941 onwards, and then from, and then uh, the of the Soviet sort of pushback and retributions against all of those that that the Soviets found distasteful. So it it really is, you know, we like to think it's us Brits, but it really isn't. And Britain was to a large extent a sideshow in World War Two. Yeah, and actually, um, uh, your fellow historian um, who we had on the show, Richard Overy, makes the point that there were two notable fronts of the second world war the east asian front and the eastern front in europe and the western front is a is a very distant third speaking yeah. of therapy and working through still the experience of the second world war there's so much stuff in the press again i don't need to tell you about this mm. about the association of sympathy for palestinians and anti-semitism uh, there's a headline today in uh, in in the media about um, demonstrations in Warsaw. There's a woman carrying a, a placard saying "Keep the world clean" with a, a sign of the uh, uh, the Israeli flag being dumped into a garbage can. Yeah, lots of controversy about that. Is it worse? Do you think in Warsaw, or and I, I'm sure it's even outside Warsaw is another world. 
Mm. Is what's happening in Poland pretty much like what's happening in London or New York or San Francisco in terms of these intense divisions between those sympathetic to what the Israelis are going through and what the Palestinians are going through? I think less so um, be, for the simple reason that Poland, um, because of its history and because of its modern political situation, with the you know the, the recent government that's been that's uh, now uh, on the way out as uh, as of uh, last week, um, has avoided the large scale um, immigration from from Muslim countries, which other other countries like Britain, US, and anywhere everywhere else in in the Western world has, has seen. Poland has avoided that. Um, so it doesn't have that particular, if you like, problem, that association of, you know, a sort of a, a, a loyalty, a fealty, fealty to Islam, which is then ex by extension a fealty to the Palestinian cause. And that's, I think, what has, what has motivated most of those um, uh, demonstrations that we saw sort of yesterday in London and elsewhere. So Poland doesn't have that element, certainly not to the absolutely not to the same, same degree. Um, but then it does have, you know, a, a Shall we say a problematic relationship with uh, with anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is, you know, is a universal disease. We know that. Um, Poland had large numbers of Jews in the interwar period, um, and it had a very, very difficult relationship with them because the, the interwar state, interwar Polish state, was perfectly understandably quite nationalistic in its ambitions, uh, and rather viewed the, the Jews in its midst as it did the Ukrainians and Belarusians and others because Poland emerged as a sort of multinational state by um, by historical chance largely um, but it viewed them rather askance uh, the minorities and uh, and it was a, it was one of those states like uh, Hungary as well was one that that had institutionalized i.e. sort of politicized anti-semitism in the interwar period which is not a great look as we know um, but, uh, you know, it, it is, as I always stress, and this is where the book comes in, I suppose, this, it's a hugely complex history uh, in Central Europe, and particularly this sort of, um, this mixing and this, the interrelationships between the, between the nationalities of interwar Poland, and then how that play, plays out into the Second World War as well. Um, and it, we have to embrace that complexity. This is one of the things I always say, you know, to to any audience, and particularly to my to my students when I'm teaching, is that you know any any sort of binary view, any black and white view, is is fundamentally you know unrealistic. We have to embrace the complexity, and we have to embrace well, that yeah, view as well. Yeah, you you say embrace complexity. I'm I'm your therapist here, Roger. Is there another word behind that? I mean, are we all coming to this with one kind of bias or another? And one of the problems with what's going on at the moment outside the the, the situation on the ground is that mm. everyone comes with biases and everyone expects people to be objective and they simply can't be. What about yourself? Tell me about your background. What draws you to this subject? I know you were born in Northern England. You've spent yep. your life as a uh, an academic historian and journalist and, and commentator. Do you have family links with the Germans or the Jews or the Poles? No, none. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't have skin in the game in that sense. So I, I come at this really, um, I mean, as you say, you're right. Nobody's objective. It's, it's, it's objectivity is kind of, you know, the, the, the Holy grail, as far as historians are concerned, we're all supposed to be objective, but of course nobody can be. So we bring all of our biases with us. That's a given, you know, whether we're, you know, biases as, 
as uh, males or as you know middle class or as Englishmen or as Britons or whatever it is. All of that stuff comes with us. Um, but you you do try as far as possible to leave it at the door. But of course, it's it, it's never entirely possible. But I know my own background. No, I, you know, I, uh, you know, you go back far enough. It's Irish on all sides, unfortunately. Um, so no, I don't have a dog in the fight in the in sort of unfortunately or fortunately. Uh, fortunate. Well, however you want to read that, it's not it's not an, identity, not an identity yeah. that I that I sort of uh, that I. That yeah, I wear. it's interesting. Let's um, uh, throw away remark. Uh, I'm in the tech business and. Uh, uh, Paddy Cosgrave, an Irishman who produces the most popular tech conference of the year, got into trouble. He had to resign last week mm. or actually over the weekend because he made some comments sympathetic to what's to, to the Palestinians. And some interpretations were that he would he would do that because he's Irish and he tends to be sympathetic yeah. to the underdog, although who knows whether that's true or not. And, and I'm actually rather sympathetic. I think he's been purged it's it's probably best to keep your head down right because somebody or other is going to purge you somebody or other is well, some, somewhere other, you know the nature of the world that we live in andrew is that somebody somewhere is going to be offended about something and and the the internet gives them a platform in which to express that i mean that's just the nature of the beast but do we all just keep our heads down and not say anything in response do we not or do we not speak our minds i think that would be rather tragic to be honest um so you know i i i tend to try and um you know uh not be cowed by that and and uh, try and try and you know explain the world as i see it to be honest in other words don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. no precisely we are talking with roger morehouse a distinguished british historian of the second world war of the third reich of the holocaust roger morehouse he's the author of a new book a really interesting new book about a plot a polish plot to not kill the jews but save the jews called the forgers um Roger, you talk about bias. Uh, your your book is inevitably going to get caught up with a debate in both Jewish circles and historical circles, and particularly in Poland, about the Polish relationship, the official and unofficial Polish relationship with the Holocaust. You know this better than I do. It's enormously sensitive. Um, what's your take since you're the official historian here on the level of Polish responsibility to what happened to the Polish Jews uh, when Germany invaded Poland. Polish responsibility is a, is a very, very loaded phrase, I have to say. Um, well, that's a fair point. Maybe it's the wrong, you, you, yeah. you can use your own phrase. Yeah, I mean, responsibility for the Holocaust lies, you know, uh, with the Germans, we know that, and they're, uh, auxiliaries, their allies that helped them, but primarily with the Germans. None of it would have happened without the Germans. Um, so we have to always remember that that's where the primary re primary responsibility lies. Uh, I said before that anti-Semitism was a universal disease, um, and it was in the interwar period as well. I mean, the Hungarians famously, you know, declared themselves to have invented anti-Semitism as a concept. They said so proudly, by the way. Um, and of course, you know, if you're talking about collaboration with the Germans, there are there are ample, you know, much better examples. Look at the French, look at the Vichy state that um, whose milice, you know, rounded up French Jews and sent them off to, on the trains to Auschwitz and to their deaths. So if you're looking for examples of official collaboration, there are much better ones or worse ones, however you want to look at it. Um, then you can look at it in Poland. Poland had no collaborationist government in this in this period. Um, really? So. Sorry. Uh, let me 
I take your point that the difference is that for better or worse, Poland was the the ground zero for the, the killing, the industrial killing at least mm -hmm. of Jews. And a lot has been written about the the way in which non-Jewish Poles either turned a blind eye or sometimes even participated in that industrial slaughter. Uh, is there any fairness to that? I think, first of all, we should stress, uh, rather than saying Poland is the is the ground zero of the, of the industrialized killing the Holocaust, we should say occupied Poland. Um, that it's a small difference. It might sound like a small difference, Andrew, but it does you know, saying that Poland is is ground zero implies some sort of agency. Ordinary Poles had no agency in this at all. Um, as I said, there was no collaborationist government. There's no structure there that, that was that enabled Poles to collaborate on an official basis. And Poles themselves, or non-Jewish Poles, are under the most difficult situation, as, as were Jewish Poles themselves. They're under a very cruel occupation, which viewed them as subhumans, just like their Jewish neighbors. And any effort to assist their Jewish neighbors would result in the death penalty for the entire family. So a vast numbers simply kept their heads down. So if you, you know, if a, if a, a desperate Jewish refugee or Jewish uh, escapee from a transport knocked on your door in the middle of the night and said, please help me, what are you going to do? And a lot of them responded by sl sh slamming the door because to, to respond in the, in the most humane way was to risk your life and the life of your family. And a lot of people were, you know, are just not morally big enough to do that because that's an extremely brave, if not reckless thing to do. So we have to understand, this is why I said before about this sort of this idea of sort of crude binaries where we tend to, or, or some parts of the narrative tend to lump the poles in, ordinary poles in as sort of alongside the perpetrators. Yeah, no, yes, there are. There are individual cases of people who benefit from or seek to benefit from Jewish suffering, whether it's by sort of, you know, threatening to, to denounce um, fugitive Jews to the Germans or, so, or, or, or even by, by handing them over. You know, there, there's cases where they've been hiding them and then those, um, you know, because they've been paid by the Jews concerned, then when the, when the Jews stop paying, they hand them over. So, yes, there are people who do that. Um, but we have to, again, as I say, embrace the complexity of the situation. There are also large numbers of people through the Polish underground, through an organization called Jagota, which was set up by the Polish underground specifically to help Jews uh, to escape um, the Holocaust and to escape persecution by the, by the Nazis. So there's a complete spectrum of human reaction to what's going on in their midst. And we have to understand the context, which is what I said, that murderous context, which applied just as well to ordinary Poles as it did to, to Jews. Uh, and we have to understand that, that spectrum of responses. So just to, to give a sort of binary response and say, well, the Poles are just as, you know, just as bad or num you know, public enemy number two alongside the Nazis is fundamentally you know, a, a misreading of history and, and a perversion of history. Yeah, I take your point. I, I think you've responded very fairly, although I would... So there is one difference is the, the Nazis, for all their evil, they weren't intent on wiping out the Poles, were they? Whereas they were intent on wiping out the Jews. Um, the Poles were like their 
Eastern Slavic neighbors, Ukrainians and others, they were seen as essentially just, you know, um, uh, disposable. disposable. They were, they, yeah. you know, they, it didn't matter whether they existed or not. So uh, there is an argument perhaps that, you know, had the, had the Third Reich been successful in the Holocaust, had it won World War II, that you could have seen, you know, mass deportations eastwards, you know, with all of the sort of, you know, uh, customary brutalities that we know about, uh, which would have cost, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of lives. So there is an argument that the Poles would have been sort of phase two of the ethnic cleansing of Central Europe. And you, you can think... see that you can see that already in in the way the Germans treated them in the general government and in, in those areas of occupied Poland. You know, they were simply disposable humans. They they weren't weren't they weren't granted any rights at all. Uh, and and you know were literally one rung above the Jews in the in the sort of Nazi racial uh, hierarchy, which is which is no no distance at all. One rung above the Jews. So you think that had the Nazis continued to win the war, that the, the Poles would have been next? To some extent, it, 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 it didn't have the, the 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 Nazi animus towards the Poles didn't have the same racial biological overtones uh, that it did with the Jews. So it didn't have that particular kind of metastasizing factor. Um, but they still fundamentally saw the Slavs, the Eastern Slavs particularly, um, as lesser forms of life that were ultimately, as I said, you know, uh, disposable. Very interesting. We are talking with uh, Roger Morehouse, a very distinguished British historian, uh, author of a, an important new book, a very controversial book about the forgotten story of the Holocaust's most audacious rescue operation um, stemming from... Polls. Uh, we're going to talk about it after the break, but I want to thank our sponsors first. Uh, Liberties, uh, an excellent new quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, edited by my friend Leon Weaseltier from Washington, D.C. It's a wonderful new publication. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Roger Morehouse to talk more about the forgers. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Roger Morehouse, the author of The Forges. Roger, I was snooping around the internet, uh, looking around at the response to The Forges, and there was an interesting review um, in the Jewish Chronicle of the book. Um, it describes you as the former protege of leading historian Norman Davis. Norman Davis, a lot of people will remember, was involved in a huge scandal at Stalin. Some people, uh, not at Stalin, at Stanford. That was a Freudian era uh, about uh, whether or not he should have got tenure. He was an early victim in some ways, I guess, some people might say, of the woke wars, although some people might say that he, his, his attitude to all this stuff is also controversial. Do you think that title is fair were you happy with it that you were associated with norman davis given that the book has nothing to do with norman davis no you're right the book doesn't have anything to do with norman davis i i would um you asked earlier on where my 
sort of origins were in terms of how I arrived at studying Central European history. And and I would unashamedly say that one of those one of those origins is Norman Davies. I studied under Norman um, as an undergraduate and worked with him very closely as a research assistant um, in my postgraduate years. Uh, we co-authored together. I, I know Norman very well. Um, so, you know, that that um, label, if you like, as a protege or Norman as a mentor is is um, I think is absolutely apt, and I'm proud of it. It's not something I'm at all. But they're appearing in the in it. the in the Jewish Chronicle. It, there's a certain. I mean, this yeah, wasn't a, a throwaway remark. No, and I I think that's. I mean, this is going back. The the, the whole Stanford thing was going way back into the 1980s. Um, I don't I don't see that Norman's sort of current um opinions on any of this are in any way controversial to be honest um i think even holocaust scholarship has moved on hugely in the intervening 40 years um so i don't you know he's certainly not you know out there as some sort of uh, radical uh, controversial figure i absolutely don't see him in that light at all so let's get to the book um we've circled around it and we're in therapy we've, we've talked about everything except the thing that you came to talk about the forgers the Forgotten Story of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation. Tell me who the Forgers were and what this story is and why indeed it's been forgotten until you resurrected it. Um, the Forgers was a, a group of Polish diplomats and Jewish activists working out of Switzerland, and it's the um, Polish ambassador. It's often known as the Wadosh Group. Uh, the Polish and ambassador. that's with an L. That's with an L. L-A-D-O-S. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the Polish ambassador to Switzerland from 1940 was called Alexander Wadosh, uh, and he sort of oversaw this group. It was a group of six people. There were other sort of peripheral members as well, but a core of six people, three of whom were dip Polish diplomats and three of whom, uh, oh, sorry, four of whom were Polish diplomats and two of whom were Jewish activists. Um, and they worked together on a on a scheme basically where they illegally produced the word forgers is a little bit of um, publishing hyperbole, I'm afraid, but they illegally produced Latin American passports, primarily of Paraguay, um, using a, a rather biddable and venal uh, honorary consul of Paraguay who was in Bern in Switzerland, who was a Swiss. Um, and they paid him a lot of money to basically give them blank passports, which they then filled out with the details of people you know, that, that they knew initially and acquaintances. And then various people then sort of applied, if you like, uh, to get these passports from about 1941 onwards. Um, and they filled out these passports. They're sort of illegally issued. So they're stamped and signed by the honorary consul. And then they're spirited back primarily into occupied Poland. There's also a later mission that went into and, and delivered them into occupied Holland as well. Um, but uh, the, the large majority went back into occupied Poland. And the, the logic was quite simply that, you know, those ordinary uh, Jews who are suffering in the camps and the ghettos and everywhere else in occupied Poland were... You know, one of the preconditions of what the Nazis were doing was that they 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 needed to make those people non-people. So they they took away any sort of you know official recognition, any sort of documents, any paperwork. None of that was valid anymore. Those 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 individuals were essentially at the whim of the of the German occupiers. Um, they had no you know you could try and call your lawyer, but you know it's not going to do any good. Um, so what this passports did was effectively to if you like reassert some sort of or the the whiff of some sort of authority some sort of higher authority which tended to stop the uh, extermination 
mechanism in its tracks. So rather than be deported to Auschwitz and to their doom, um, very often they would be pulled out of the line, you know, after brandishing this sort of false Paraguayan passport. Um, they would be taken out of the line and would be sent instead to concentration camp. Most usually it was actually Bergen-Belsen, which is a, a pretty dreadful concentration camp, but um, it didn't mean the sort of the imminent death that you had uh, if you went to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, so that was the, the way it worked. They realized fairly quickly that sort of playing on, um, to some extent, playing on this sort of German mania for having the right documentation and the possibility that these people from the German perspective might know even be foreign jews that to the germans was that gave them a value again that that ordinary polish jews didn't have it's so almost as if uh, hannah arendt and kafka combined on a a short story or a, a parable about all this it is a, it is absolutely because it, it is quite peculiar they they sort of hit upon this you know it's like the a, a sort of bureaucratic soft underbelly of the nazi state um, and the, the Germans themselves, you know, are, are willing to go along with this. They kind of know that these are false passports, but they're willing to go along with this because to, to, to label these people as foreign Jews, it means they have a value again. And the idea for, from their perspective is that if they can then persuade the, the outside world, the, the Americans primarily, um, but also the neutral outside world to, to take these foreign Jews and to exchange them for Germans held abroad, then it's win-win. They get rid of the Jews and they get German yeah, but, you know, good but, blood back. But did for, for, I had a couple of very, maybe these are dumb questions. Poland was invaded and occupied. So Poland essentially, as you put it, occupied Poland, came to an end once the Germans invaded or the country got divided. Mm. Um, so this guy Ladosh in, uh, in, in Switzerland, he wasn't an official diplomat. I assume he oh, was yeah. a kind of po Polish refugee. No, no. The um, this is one of the key key points about um, uh, the Polish situation in World War Two is that ne they never formally surrendered in 1939. So they're defeated in the field by the Germans and the Soviets. Of course, you remember the Soviets and the Germans are effectively working together in 1939. Um, so Polish forces are defeated in the field, um, but there is no formal surrender. There's no there's no peace treaty signed, for example. There's no, as I said before, there's no collaborationist government set up. There's no Vichy. Um, the, all of the, a lot of the politicians, a lot of the senior military escape, usually southeastward via, via Romania. They get west in 1940. There's an exile government set up uh, in Angers in France in 1940, which then, with the fall of France, ends up in London. So the formal Polish government is in exile in London from 1940 yeah. um, but is still is still functioning is still the you know the the legal representative of the Polish state even if that country itself is under occupation so, oh, so it still has saying, it still so has it, ambassadors so it's so so it's a sort of a kabuki theater there was a Polish embassy and Polish diplomats in Switzerland who were able to issue passports and and the plot was to was to smuggle these passports back into Poland for Polish Jews. Is that right? Yeah, I mean they couldn't they couldn't issue Polish passports. That would be too simple. They did for in in some small cases. There's an example of a um, French politician called um, a Pierre Montfrance who was actually persecuted by Vichy, escaped from Vichy uh, into Switzerland, and they gave him a Polish passport with which to escape west incidentally but they couldn't just send polish passports into occupied poland 
because that would they they were you know deemed worthless by the by the German state. So it had to be passports of another country. But you're you know absolutely they still have this diplomatic network. They still they have a diplomat in they have um, diplomatic representation in in Sweden. They have diplomatic representation in in Turkey. So across the um, you know the neutral world and the allied world, there are still Polish diplomatic representatives. So it's a kind of diplomatic in your narrative. It's a diplomatic resistance. Effectively, yes, and that, and this is where the the second half of the book, you know, that in that first half of the book, it's about the, how they develop this idea and how that is how that's carried out, and they produce um, documents for something like ten thousand people by their own estimation, which is a, a substantial number. You know, this is a, this is more than just a sort of cottage industry. Um, the second half of the book is it goes into the sort of question of what happens next because they're shut down by the Swiss in at the end of nineteen forty three. Um, largely at the behest of the Germans, it must be said. Um, yeah. So the operation Lots stops. Have been written about speaking of moral responsibility, the Swiss's role in all this too. Yeah, exactly. Which is which is very which is rather dark. You know, let's put it put it mildly. Um, so the second half of the book is what happens next. You've got these passports are out there, and these people are being held in various camps by the Germans as foreign Jews or exchange Jews, as they called them. So what happens next? And, and then, it's the, then it becomes this sort of diplomatic wrestle uh, in which the Polish diplomatic circles, uh, you know, across the world, really, are going into bat to, you know, to, to harangue anyone that will listen to say, look, you've got to persuade the Paraguayans. Most of the passports produced, incidentally, are Paraguayan. Um, you know, that they will publicly say they'll recognize these passports, because if they don't, or if they say that they won't, then the Germans will just treat the, the holders of those passports as if they're ordinary Jews. And we know what happens to ordinary Jews. We know what happens. But we know what happens now, Roger. And again, don't need me telling you this. There's mm. a huge amount of controversy about who knew what when. Uh, is your circle of di diplomatic resistance, did they have more knowledge, perhaps, of the, the death camps and what was happening to the Polish Jews? than people in London or, or, or Washington, D.C.? It, it's a very good point. It's one that I, it's a key part of the book, actually, is to chart precisely the question that, questions that you ask. Who knew what when? And we have to bear in mind in this, and this is something I think is often overlooked, is that the vast majority of that early information about the Holocaust um, actually comes through the Polish underground. So I mentioned the, you know, the Polish government in exile in the West, in, in France, later in London. Their representatives, if you like, in Poland itself, in occupied Poland, was the Polish underground, which was not just an, a military organization. It also had sort of political representatives as well. You know, they are the representatives of that government in exile. Um, and they were, their primary purpose in the early years is, is intelligence gathering, is to feed back to London and say, look, this is what's going on. This is, this is how people are reacting. This is what the economy is doing under occupation and so on. It's intelligence gathering. Um, and that's where the first information of the Holocaust comes from. You know, that, that early phase of the, you know, what we rather gruesomely call the Holocaust by shooting, um, the Einsatzgruppen in 1941 and so on, sort of mass shootings um, after June 41. The first reports of that to come west come via the Polish underground. And it's all very piecemeal initially. Um, when you get into the phase of industrialized killing, then it becomes much more coherent. But it's still, you know, mm. inter, in an in, in a intelligence sense, it's still rather piecemeal. But by the end of 1942, and this is a key point, by the end of 1942, the Polish government in exile has sufficient 
um, intelligence on all of this, that it puts together what's called the Raczynski Note in December of 1942, which is then sent and it's circulated as a, as a missive to the Allied governments, basically to say, this is where we're at, that you know, the estimate is that, you know, however many, I think by that stage, probably two million Jews have been murdered. This is an industrialized process of mass killing, aiming at exterminating the Jews. Uh, and it's it's comparatively early in terms of the intelligence, but it's it's it actually stands up remarkably well in terms of, you know, at the time, you know, people were sort of casting around, not really knowing precisely what was going on. That information came again from the from the Poles and from the Polish underground. Um, so yes, absolutely. Those those diplomats knew quite well already by the end of 1942, having amassed that information and having made it public in the Raczynski note, they knew that there was an ongoing uh, genocidal policy against against the Jews of Europe. And of course, there were two Holocausts. There was the Holocaust, I guess, in in Auschwitz and west of Auschwitz, industrial murder of the Jews, and then a different kind of Holocaust east of Auschwitz, which was much more anarchic and chaotic and piecemeal. Um, the book, it's an interesting story, uh, Roger. Um, the subtitle of The Forgers is The Forgotten Story of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation. The, the question is, okay, it's forgotten, and okay, you're resurrecting it and telling it in, in, in an extremely erudite and readable way. But is it a forgettable story? Nothing came out of it. I mean, it's an interesting story, I guess, but no lives were. Were, were any lives saved from any of this? Yes, they were. I mean, we know we know that um, a lot of work has been done, actually, incidentally, by the, the Pilecki Institute in, uh, in Warsaw in Poland, which has been working on this for a long time. So I piggybacked quite shamelessly on a lot of their work. Uh, it's been going on for a few years. And they've they've set themselves the task of sort of trying to collect as many survivors from this period as possible, um, and they've got to a figure of about eight hundred and fifty plus um, that they know survived of those ten thousand. Um, and are they aware that eight hundred? I mean, that's a are those eight hundred and fifty people who who I guess who whose lives were saved by this plot? Are they aware of what happened? Um. Yes, up to a, up to a point. I mean, very often you have. I mean, I have a very good example of this. You you might know the there's a book that's recently come out called um, uh, actually I think it has a different title in the US, but by by Daniel Finkelstein, who's a British. Um, yeah, he's controversial. Uh, I haven't had him on the show, but I'm right. Him. I mean, it, the book is, the book is fantastic. I have to say, you must get him on the show. The book is fantastic, um, and he is he is in the House of Lords in the UK. He's a very prominent commentator on. You know, political and and by extension Jewish issues as well, um, and he his existence is owed to a, to Wadosh passport to one of these passports. His mother, um, who was originally a Vena, so she, she her father was was Alfred Vena of the the famous Vena Library in London. Um, so she survived in Belson uh, on a Wadosh passport. Um, now I had this this sort of story crossed my desk and I was working on it and then every year um Daniel Finkelstein used to do a sort of series of linked tweets around Holocaust Memorial Day where he'd tell the story of both sides of his family um, which is you know remarkable story and it's and it's told in much greater depth in his book which I absolutely recommend um but one of these tweets mentioned a Paraguayan passport and this was then alerted and sent to me and said you might want to jump on this 
And I contacted Danny at the time. This is going back, wait, this is just before COVID. Uh, and I got in touch with him. I said, what do you know about this Paraguayan passport? And he said, nothing. I said, okay, uh, so we need to talk. Uh, we met a couple of days later and had a coffee and I filled him in on the details of, of the story of the Paraguayan passport. So the Paraguayan passport had been part of the family narrative as in this was, this was how uh, his mother survived, but they never knew where it came from, who'd prepared it. You know, that was, a, that was entirely opaque to them. Um, and I, my great hope for this book is that there are probably other families out there and you know, particularly in the US, that that have a similar story you know that there's a paraguayan passport or or a honduran passport and this is how you know grandmother survived the holocaust but we don't know any more about it well sure, you know, sure. my book might answer that question for you the israelis and the uh, jews around the world of course have spent a lot of time focused on thanking people who who helped save jews non-jews is Ladosh in the Hall of Fame? There is a, a, at Yad Vashem, for example. I know there is a, a list. I can't remember exactly what it's called. The, the of, Righteous of, Among the Nations. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, he, is he on that list? Is he recognized? Um, bear in mind, first of all, that the list is only for, um, for uh, non-Jews. So on that oh, basis... Oh, he was Jewish, Ladosh? No, no, he was Polish, but he was non non Jewish. So in that sense, only three of the of the six would qualify because only three of them are non Jewish. Um, Wardosh himself isn't one of the one of the three is Konstanty Konstanty Rokitsky, who's the man who actually filled them all out. So the vast majority of those ten thousand you know um, passports and 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 uh, um, identity documents that were created by them. Were, were filled out in the same rather peculiar handwriting, which was that of Konstanty Rakitsky. He was named righteous in 2019, uh, and rightfully so, I think. The other two, uh, who are Wadosh himself and his deputy, Stefan Rinievich, um, have, I think there's an application still pending with Yad Vashem for them to be recognized as righteous. Um, I hope that will happen. I think there are some sort of, you know, there's some sort of bureaucratic um, criteria and so on that have to be met. I mean, in terms of um, doing, you know, aiding Jews at your own peril. But if you look at a lot of the names, for example, of of, of others who have been recognised as righteous, very often I think that, that such criteria tend, you know, they're, they're as, as often honoured in the breach as they are as they are sort of stipulated upon. So um, I, I'm hopeful. I mean, this is still quite a new story, let's be honest. So the, the whole Wadosh story really was forgotten until about sort of 2016, 2017, uh, when it started to surface again. Um, so the, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, this is only a matter of time and the other two will also be recognised in due course. And, and you know, hopefully the, my book, by putting it into, into the wider context and showing, you know, the lengths that they went to, um, to try and secure the lives of those for whom passports had already been produced, you know, by extension, by that that that, that diplomatic wrangle to try and you know uh, persuade anyone that would listen to recognise those passports. Um, I would hope that 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 was sufficient for them to qualify as well. So I, I'm I'm hoping that that's just a matter of time. Maybe there'll be one day a, a version of. Uh... Schindler's List for your book, The Forgers, or maybe it's the kind of book that needs a novel uh, fiction around it, but uh, it's an important story. Let's end where we began, Roger. Um, your book is about remembering, remembering 
heroic because i mean these guys were risking presumably they were risking their lives were they um switzerland is a peculiar place in the in the wartime period i mean it is an island of democracy in a sort of totalitarian sea but that doesn't mean it's entirely free um so it's still very much you know under the shadow of of its sort of german neighbor to the north and there's a lot of collaboration for example with the swiss police you know with the gestapo mm. and that's how the operation was shut down so i you know you can again if you if you want to be sort of binary about it you can say well they were safe they were in a they were in a free society but you know it's it's rather more complex than that i don't think they're at necessarily at the same degree of risk that you might have been in you know occupied warsaw or in or in uh, budapest at the time but there's still a degree of personal risk there but as i said i mean it's still a it's an interesting story and an important story but let's end where we began with forgetting your your book is called the forgotten story of the holocaust most audacious rescue operation at what point can we forget all this at what point can we move on i was I think many of our viewers will be pleased that um, uh, that the recent elections in Poland uh, elected Donald Tusk uh, back to power, who seems to be a man, I mean, he's aware of history, but at least he's looking forward rather than backwards in contrast with the previous government. Can the polls help us look forward to get beyond finally all this obsession with the Second World War, which isn't really getting us anywhere? Um isn't getting us anywhere i mean that's that's a that's that's maybe a little bit of state that's a little bit of statement of someone who's sort of in a maybe in a country that's that's much more comfortable with its history i don't know that i mean even the us that doesn't work either it's invent the us is sort of inventing uh crises in its own history as it goes along but you, you have to bear in mind in poland's case as i said before that poland has only been allowed to be honest about its own recent history you know for the last 30 years so to some extent, to use your metaphor of therapy, they're still in therapy uh, and they're still working this stuff through. So I think to to sort of from the outside, from the comfort of, you know, certainly from the UK to sort of wish upon the polls, that, oh, can't they just sort of forget about it all and move on um, is, a, is a little bit wish, wishful thinking and a little bit, to be honest, I think of Western arrogance. You know, these countries, every country has to work through its own history and it needs to, every country needs to have a usable history a history that you know tells itself how it got to where it is who it is as a nation uh and all of those important aspects that sort of bolster our our uh you know our our sense of nationality um and this is why history is sort of so crucial and for a lot of countries you know for for, for the us now it's all about sort of slavery and 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 that that history from maybe you know two three hundred years ago and beyond um poland's defining history still to a large extent is world war ii uh, and we have to give them space to work through it and and just as i said wishing wishing it from the outside and saying you know can't we just forget about it and move on is, is somewhat unrealistic <laughs>